This is the fifth Sunday of Easter, and this week and last week we begin now to see the subtle shifting of gears between a focus in the readings on the resurrection faith, on the resurrection appearances, to now appropriating the resurrection faith, making it part of our own personal history, talking about the themes that the New Testament church was now beginning to talk about and to uh, converse with one another about how then must we live. So Father Emerson preached to you last week about salvation and how important the preaching of salvation was to the early church. As they say, the primitive kergma, the proclamation. And how we understand that salvation in both Greek and Hebrew means to bring to full maturity, to wholeness, completeness, healing. And so you and I have the opportunity to appropriate and understand, at least in some ways, as we live, God's saving work and God's saving power in our lives. This week, the major theme is love, and we particularly read about its importance and centrality in the first epistle of John, which will be at the center of my uh, sermon. But before I do that, I want to say something to you about the word love. It is a word that is now become so sentimentalized in our culture that it's very hard to understand what in the world it means. We can actually believe, for example, that Kim Kardashian would have the slightest idea of what in the world love means. You know? So that is one of the difficulties. Perhaps, you know, in every age uh, that has been true. But a lot of times in our culture, people think about love like Dean Roof at my seminary used to describe to us in the Paul class, love. So we're going to try not to talk about that in that way, but to say some things about how the ancients understood the meaning of love and its centrality and power. And by virtue of that, to maybe gain some insight into what it means when you heard, read to you in the epistle that God is love, and how do we understand that? And how do we become reflections and transparencies of God's grace and love to the world? And why is that so important? Remember to the Johannine community, they believe that love should be the silent partner in all human relationship. So how does that make itself manifest in the world? In Greek, we have a number of words for love. We have love, which is one of the words we use. And it's the one that has become over-sentimentalized. I forgot to mention this at 9 o'clock. One of the best sermons I heard preached when I was a seminarian at Neshota House was by a priest from Kenosha, Wisconsin. And he was preaching about sentimentality. And he said, sentimentality is almost always characterized by a low threshold of pain. Think about it. The New Testament was written in Greek, and Greeks had five words for love. 
not just one. And so the reason that's important is that the authors of the, of the New Testament uh, were aware of their thought world, certainly Paul was, and the, their antecedents in Hebrew, and how we understood what that might mean when we think about the word love. So let me run through them for you because you've heard some of them before. The one that is spoken about most or used most in the New Testament is agape, which is self-giving love, love that is loved without regard for the loveliness of the object towards which the love is directed. It is selfless. It's used slightly differently in some places, but most of the time it means that kind of love. Maybe some would say altruistic love, but that may not be the best way to translate that either. So that's the most important. That's the one that Paul uses. The other word that is used in the New Testament is philia, which means brotherly love or sisterly love. And we encounter that a few times in the New Testament text. But here are some of the other words. Eros which we normally, um, we normally translate as sexual love or physical attraction. And you'd be interested to know that uh, the, the word eros is used in the writings of the early Christian writers on the spiritual life of the first four centuries uh, when they speak of contemplation and the striving, striving towards union with God. That this term is the one uh, that is used. The other word is storge, which means affection for people, the normal affection that we have. They would have said the affection parents have for their children, although I've been a pastor for a while, and I've seen some pretty overweening affection that parents have had for their children that hasn't always been healthy, we might say. And finally, the one that I found this week that I wanted to talk about and never have is xenia or phyloxenia, which means hospitality. And it's a wonderful word because it uh, focuses itself on the community life and how they understand themselves. You know the word uh, xenophobic? You've heard that word. You know, xeno meant a stranger or an alien in the ancient Near East. So if you were xenophobic, what did that mean? You were afraid of people who were different or you didn't like people who were different and so forth. So this means love for the stranger. Love for the outcast. Love for the person alien in your country. And in, we know about this word, by the way, because it's talked about widely in the Iliad and in the Odyssey. Homer talks about this. And there were elaborate ways in which people understood how you exercised this particular form of love, this hospitality and why it was so important. And here was what the motive was, or one of them, underneath all this. And that is that, you know, the, the Greek, in the Greek system, the gods are all down here 
wandering around with us, you know, in some form, often. So you may be over at the farmer's market and run into one and not know it. You didn't recognize them. They may be strange, but you don't want to... Isn't there a line somewhere that says, we don't want to be caught entertaining angels unawares? Right? So that's sort of a version of, gee whiz, I don't want to treat somebody who's a god with a lack of respect or hospitality. So what do we do? We treat everybody with hospitality and generosity. You know, not just in case, but because we begin to see that that's one of the qualities that human beings should cultivate to be virtuous, or more directly to say, to uh, create their character and deepen it. So there were elaborate protocols about this, and the interesting thing is that the person who was the recipient of this hospitality or generosity had no obligation laid upon them because they were a recipient of this other than thank you. And in fact, in some of the literature we possess, at the end of the time the, the person stayed with you and you fed them and let them have a bath if they wanted one, when they left, you gave them a present. And I remember reading in one of Alan Jones' books, the former uh, dean of Grace Cathedral, when he was speaking about being in a monastery in Ethiopia, and I want to tell you, friends, that's pretty down to the nub. And after he spent three days in this monastery in Ethiopia, as he left, one of the brothers came out of the monastery and gave him a flower as he left. A gift. So in the Christian faith and life, the idea of hospitality is important. I'm belaboring this because in the Episcopal Church, there's been an enormous amount of conversation over the last few years about the importance of the practice of radical hospitality. And that part of our desire to reorient how we understand the nature of parish life as its principal function being to pat each other into shape as opposed to going out and in some way commending the faith that is in you, the pastoral model versus the mission model, that one of the ways in which we understand that in our ordinary Sunday-to-Sunday -Sunday life is that we practice hospitality and generosity, and we do it through the week with the people who pass through here. So that's one of the ways that love can be expressed. So here we have in 1 John the only location of the term God is love. And when some people say, well, what does that mean? Most would say, well, perhaps um, the default uh, expression of God in the cosmos is love. When I was in seminary, you don't have to remember this, there's no test. It was even more important than God's aseity, his being. But you know, there are some biblical scholars who say that in this particular context, what the author of 1 John is saying is that when he says God is love, he is describing an event that continues 
What is the event? The sending of his son to save us. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son to the end that all that believe in him should not perish, but have eternal life. And that this event now continues, how? In the community that the beloved disciple was addressing in 1 John. So we now become the instruments of the, the reflection of, and the expression of God's love in the world as being something that is central to our self-understanding. So I was thinking when I was writing this sermon, what do we mean when we say such a thing? Because uh, you and I have to express this in some way with those nearest and dearest. Sometimes, you know, it's a great mystery. We, we treat the people we love the most uh, with the worst. However, you're going to say there must be something eating him today, but uh, I've always believed in the truth of the aphorism, familiarity breeds contempt. I think it's true. I always have. You know, he said he was going to build those bookshelves 10 years ago, and he hasn't done anything about that. He's just let them go, right? Why doesn't he ever get a guy in here? She, I mean, right? That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about some sort of an activity in relationship. So if you'll bear with me, Dr. John McQuarrie, uh, who has uh, been dead for a few years now, but he was the Lady Margaret Professor of Divinity at Oxford for a number of years. Um, I had the fortune to meet him on more than one occasion. In his book, The Principles of Christian Theology, he says that love is letting be. Love usually gets defined in terms of union or the drive toward union. But such a definition is too egocentric. Love does indeed lead to community, but to aim primarily at uniting the other person to oneself or oneself to them is not the secret of love and may even be destructive of genuine community. Love is letting be, not of course in the sense of standing off from someone or something, but in the positive and active sense of enabling to be. When we talk of letting be, we are to understand both parts of this hyphenated expression in a strong sense. Letting as empowering and be as enjoying the maximal range of being that is open to the particular being concerned. So we are back to seeing that the love of God is understood as being engaged in the process of transformation and to see that in relationship we are to see when it is important to preserve self and when it is necessary to give of self in order that all of us can achieve the full realization of our potential. You and I have to struggle with those closest and dearest to us on a daily basis with these issues. At the sermon discussion group, somebody was talking about how do you handle your children who when they get older start to do things or go in a direction in their life that you don't approve of. And how do you struggle with living vicariously through your children? 
so that you think they ought to behave a certain way or do a certain thing, and then they do something else. They have a select another vocation. Can you let that be? So Dr. McQuarrie would suggest that perhaps learning how to do that is important. Learning to understand where we begin and end and other people begin and end is one of the ways we learn how to love each other. And it is one of the places where true intimacy develops. Edwin Friedman used to always say, focusing on pathology breeds dependency. Focusing on strength breeds intimacy. And you and I ought to be about what it means to think about the nature of God's love first as the intimacy with God and how we understand that to be something we now reflect back to the world. Remember, at your baptism, you receive three infused virtues. They're called the theological virtues, faith, hope, and love. And by virtue of that, you have that capacity, even though it may be difficult for, for us sometimes uh, to discover that and know that. One of the things we have to learn is... Uh, you know, I got to thinking about this. I should tell you this. I, have you ever heard looking for love in all the wrong places? I thought it was some country and western song. No. St. Augustine of Hippo said it a long time ago about himself. And he also said... I was in love with love. Have you ever heard that before? So it's been around for a while, hasn't it? Why is that important? Well, you know, each one of us is special in God's eyes, but none of us are unique. And by virtue of that, we have something to learn about God's way with us and that other people have just been like that and that maybe sometimes we learn something about that by, with one another by sharing our experience, strength, and hope. So give thanks for the opportunity this week to uh, express the love of God to the world. Remember, you know, in 1 John it says, one of my favorite lines, I didn't mention this, is perfect love casts out fear. You know who you are, and you know that what is said in 1 John today means you are unconditionally loved, accepted, and forgiven by God. And all Christians from the jump have believed that is the default position. Give thanks for that this week and for the opportunity to express God's love in the world. Amen. <laughs>